0: Witness Docs from Stitcher.
1: Previously, on Ernie's Secret.
0: The whole unraveling of Ernie's secret life as an informant turns on this one phrase and this one code number in this sentence.
2: I knew nothing about it. Nothing at all. And that was the first I heard about it in that article that my father was an FBI informant.
3: I never thought that anybody would sell their own community out in earnest of all people.
0: Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a Lifetime Membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your Lifetime Membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off.
1: It's four months before Christmas, 1967, and the Lawrence family is arranging themselves in the living room of their Memphis home.
3: Dad settles into the upholstered easy chair. My father is sitting in that chair. It was the same chair that he sat in every night to write up his notes into a report. Mom stands behind him, and daughters Betty and Nancy flank their father. Everyone is dressed for the occasion. Dark suits and dresses. Mom's even wearing a double strand of pearls around her neck. That's me on the right, my sister on the left, on the arms of the chair, and my mother standing behind my father, Margaret Lawrence. Nancy Lawrence, Betty Lawrence, Bill Lawrence. They all stare out across the
1: living room to where a camera is perched atop a tripod. Behind it, the
3: photographer, Ernest Withers. He was on the other side of the living room, which wasn't huge. Tall, dignified black man with a camera on a stand. Look this way. Move a little closer. Smile. He took that picture, and Daddy was real grateful, and we got the prints that we sent out to the relatives at Christmas.
1: The way Betty Lawrence puts it, Ernest was her daddy's black photographer
3: friend. This was the first and only time she'd ever meet him. But I had heard of Ernest, I should say, for years over the dinner table. Daddy would tell funny anecdotes about various people that he had talked to that day. You know, old Ernest said this. And it was funny. So I felt like Ernest was somewhat a known quantity. Bill Lawrence and Ernest Withers had
1: a lot in common. They were roughly the same age, both respected professionals and family men, both of them well-known around Memphis. And by the time Ernest
3: came to the Lawrence house to take that family photo, he and Bill had known each other for several years. I knew that he and Daddy were friends. I still feel that way. You don't, you don't send Christmas cards 10 years after you've seen a person if they're not your friend. Maybe the two men were
1: friends. But maybe not. The relationship between them was complicated. It was messy. And it definitely wasn't what it seemed to Betty or to anyone else at the time. This is Unfinished, Ernie's Secret. I'm Wesley Lowery. By the time of the 1967 Christmas portrait, Ernest Withers had taken hundreds of photos for Bill Lawrence, and the two men had had countless conversations. But they weren't family photos. It wasn't small talk. Bill was also known as Special Agent William H. Lawrence, the FBI's top official in Memphis. He was in charge of the city's domestic intelligence operation, chasing communists, ordering spying, and for years running paid informant Ernest Withers. Our question today is how did Bill and Ernest first join forces? Why did Ernest sign up to help the FBI, to help it spy on a movement that he'd done so much to elevate? And what was it about these two men, about this moment in history, that made their relationship possible and last for so long? The truth is, we may never really know. Both of the men are dead. Neither of them can speak for themselves. But we were able to do the next best thing. We spoke to their daughters. Rosalind Withers and Betty Lawrence, two daughters who can help bring us as close as we can get to the minds of the
2: two men at the center of our story. Here's Roz. I've learned about who I am. I've learned about who we are. I've learned so much through the eyes and the lens of Ernest Withers. And Betty
3: on her dad, Bill. You know, his honesty and his integrity and his veracity, that's what he was. He was. In order to understand what brought Ernest and Bill together,
1: we have to first understand where these two men came from.
3: One of the best-known buildings in Washington, D.C. is the Department of Justice.
1: And before we can begin the story of Bill Lawrence, we have to tell the story of J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover, of course, is the legendary FBI director who spent five decades leading the agency and obsessively wielding its power in pursuit of so-called racial agitators and communists.
0: Upon the shoulders of John Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI since 1924, rest heavy responsibilities.
1: Hoover got his start at the agency in 1919, when he was just 24, and he was put in charge of running the, quote, radical division. Its purpose was to sniff out so-called radical groups and subversives. That meant labor activists, anarchists, communists, and left-wing publications. Hoover was really good at this. In just his first year, the Radical Division amassed more than 200,000 files. And it was an experience that would forever shape Hoover. And it would shape the way Hoover ran his FBI. One of his earliest targets was Marcus Garvey, the influential Jamaican journalist and activist. It was among the first times that Hoover would target someone solely for their politics.
0: Hello citizens of Africa,
3: I greet you in the name of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World. You may ask, what organization is that?
1: In the 1920s, Garvey was in the vanguard of black activism. He argued that white society would never accept black Americans as their equals.
3: It is for me to inform you that the Universal Negro Improvement Association is an organization that seeks to unite into one solid body the 400 million Negroes of the world.
1: How could America call itself a democracy, Garvey questioned, when millions of its black citizens remain so oppressed? This was just the kind of thinking, and Garvey was just the kind of person, that Hoover feared and hated. He was a charismatic black leader, leveling damning critiques of the country. He was mobilizing black Americans a potential black messiah. And so Hoover committed to ruining Marcus Garvey. He spied on him. He gathered damaging personal information. He sabotaged his businesses. It was tools like these that Hoover would employ again and again throughout his law enforcement career. Eventually, Garvey was deported, labeled a, quote, undesirable alien, and sent back to Jamaica. But for all the its harassment of activists like Marcus Garvey, Hoover's FBI was equally skilled at something else, public relations. They crafted the squeaky clean image that many people still think of, black suits and buzz cuts,
3: the G-men. A special agent must be a good marksman and have the courage to shoot it out with the most venomous of public enemies.
1: It was an image meant to attract recruits like Bill Lawrence, who was an 18-year-old college kid when he first signed up for the Bureau.
3: I think the Bureau was a fairly, i almost say romantic, but it was the Elliot Ness business. It was, you know, catch the bad guys. It was as clear as that. He, he felt like it could be valuable service. Bill did a few
1: stints at FBI offices around the country. In 1945, he transferred to Memphis, the city where he would make his name.
3: Of course, that was just at the beginning of the Cold War, kind of. And communist. you know, that was the big threat. And That was what they were going to not let our institutions all get taken over by, and they were going to get subversives out. And that is really what they worked on at that time. But if you're going to get the subversives out, you first got
1: to figure out who they are. In the years that followed the Second World War, subversives meant communists.
0: In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings, or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist.
3: I don't think that my father thought there were communists around every corner. I think he thought that there could be communists around most any corner. And I think he saw his job at figuring out which corners to keep track of and which he didn't need to worry about. In
1: 1954, Bill Lawrence got his big break on one of those street corners. He arrested Junius Scales, a leader of the Communist Party of the United States, who had gone into
3: hiding in Memphis. Betty was five years old at the time. He went up and put his hand on his shoulder and said, I'm Bill Lawrence of the FBI and you're under arrest. And that was how he affected the arrest, right there at the bus stop. So, yeah, that was a good claim to fame. Scales was the only American
1: to ever be jailed simply for being a member of the Communist Party, a legal battle that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And so his arrest was a big deal in the FBI,
3: so much so that it earned Bill Lawrence a personal letter from J. Edgar Hoover. Dear Mr. Lawrence, I have noted with much satisfaction your fine participation in the apprehension of Junius Irving Scales, and I wish to take this means to express my appreciation to you. The manner in which you developed information, establishing the whereabouts of Scales, making possible his apprehension, is certainly worthy of special recognition. It is a pleasure to commend you. Sincerely yours, J. Edgar Hooper.
1: Was your father proud of that letter?
3: Uh, Yeah, I mean, he saved it. Yeah, he was proud. He, he was proud of Hoover. You know, Hoover had been his uncle's or his great-uncle's next-door neighbor in Oklahoma back in the day. So I think he was prepared to like Hoover because of that. Um, but also, it was Hoover's FBI that he joined. And even time with his girls could be used for work. After supper, on summer evenings is the way I remember it, he'd get my sister and I, when we were still pretty little, And he'd say, you want to go buy a house? And we thought, yeah, let's go buy a house. That sounds like fun. And all we'd do would be to drive by, and he would see what cars were parked in front of a house and who was attending a meeting that he knew would take place that evening. But it was just my father in his big black Chevy with his two little girls going slowly past that house. He was doing surveillance. We didn't realize for years that that's what go buy a house meant. At the end of the
1: day, Bill Lawrence would sit in his upholstered chair, the same one he sat in for that family photo. He'd take all his notes, all the information he'd gathered, and he'd put it all into
3: a report. Write them on pads of government paper, and then he would go to the office at about 6 o'clock in the morning and dictate the report. You know, it would all be done. He could could face whatever he was going to learn the next day. And that's what he did. He did it five days a week. Hunting Communist
1: five days a week. A personal letter from Director Hoover on his wall. A wife, two healthy daughters, a nice home. By the mid-1950s, Bill Lawrence was living the dream. And actually, so was Ernest. That's after the break.
0: Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off.
1: Ernest Withers and Bill Lawrence arrived in Memphis just a year apart. In 1945, Bill came to a new city for a new job. But for Ernest, Memphis was home. It's where he grew up where his family had lived for generations. And in 1946, he was returning back from war. In the Army, he had learned photography. And he learned that he could make money by charging his fellow soldiers two cents per photo. And who wouldn't want a photo good enough to send home to their wife or girlfriend?
2: But what was significant about my father is that he would be collecting money for everything he sold, roll it up, Put it in one of those tin containers that the film came in and shipped my mom all these tens of cans. Of- and
1: so he's overseas taking photos of all the enlisted men and then sending back these, these rolls and rolls of money. For my mom and her children, yes. By that point, there were three children in the Withers family, and five more were coming. Roz was the youngest, the only girl. Of course, I was
2: his favorite, (laughs) so (laughs) So you're a biased source. Yes, seven, seven brothers I was raised with. And being the only girl in the last of Dorothy and Ernest Withers, it meant a lot. When Ernest got back from the military,
1: his father had wanted him to be a postman, just like he had been. He said no. He didn't want to be a postman. He wanted to be a photographer. Ernest opened his first studio. But with so many mouths to feed, he needed another job. So he tried something very different. In 1948, he and eight others became the first black police officers in Memphis history.
2: They felt that they needed black policemen in the black communities because the communities of African Americans were growing. The white officers didn't really want to police our areas. So they had agreed politically that it was necessary to begin to hire black policemen so that they could police our areas. Now, what was it
1: like to be one of the early black policemen?
2: That, I think, was, was something uh, not so easy for my father because he was so popular. Hmm. There were things that were taking place that they had undercover cops to do. And because my father was so well-known, it got to be uh, a challenge for him to do any undercover work. Hmm. So he attributes that to agitating his boss to them not having a good relationship because of his popularity, and which led to him, you know, kind of leaving the force. It was a little more complicated than that. Just a few years after joining
1: the force, Ernest was arrested for allegedly skimming profits from a bootlegger. He wasn't charged with anything, but he lost his job and his salary. But his firing, Roz contends, came at least in part because of the animus that Ernest's bosses had felt towards him. So Ernest went back to photography and he opened a new studio. Timing, it turns out, is everything. Because the battle over desegregation was just about to begin, and the black press needed journalists on the front lines.
2: And I think having to interact with people as a police officer even helped him in being able to be in the middle of situations because he knew how to get there. Hmm. You know, He knew how to place himself there without getting in trouble.
1: Ernest got into places. He got pictures that no one else even dared to try to take. There's the one inside the Emmett Till trial, but then there's this other one in a different courtroom. You see black lawyers on one side and white lawyers on the other. And as you look at it, you find yourself thinking, wait, did Ernest take that photo while sitting at the judge's bench?
2: When you look at that and you look at that photograph and you look at the death of that photograph... Where he captured that photograph, he had to be like right behind the judge. So, what kind of relationship or respect that he had in that courtroom in order to be able to capture everybody's face in front of the judge? Hmm. The judge had to trust him to be there. I mean, how many judges you know would let you do that?
1: Very few. Yeah. Especially not that. So, time.
2: there was a, there was, he was really a relationship builder. He knew how to have you know, relationships to get things accomplished.
1: All of a sudden, Ernest was the go-to photographer for the black press. And that's how he ended up in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957.
0: I have today issued an executive order
1: directing the use of troops under federal authority to aid in the
0: execution of federal law at Little Rock, Arkansas.
1: President Dwight Eisenhower ordered the National Guard to escort nine black students into Central High School. The students had already tried and failed twice. But this time, Ernest was there to document things. I'll let him pick up the story. He told it to an audience back in 2004.
0: This is the next morning after the Arkansas National Guard had been
1: federalized and the Little Rock Nine kids were loaded in the station wagon As four of the girls get out of the car and climb the steps to the school door, they're greeted by a hostile white crowd. The young lady
0: there is Galata Walls, Elizabeth Eckford, Minnie Jean Brown, which was most provocative.
1: (laughs) One of the girls, Minnie Jean Brown, drops a sheet of paper and bends over in her polka dot dress to pick it up from the pavement. At that very moment, Ernest snaps a picture. It contains a stunning juxtaposition the innocent youth of the black schoolgirls, and the insatiable bigotry of the white mob. Things didn't get better in Little Rock. A year after those nine kids were escorted into Central High, the governor shut down all of the schools in the state in order to stop black students from attending. Ernest was sent back to the scene. And this time, He stopped by the FBI field office. According to FBI documents, on September 28, 1958, Ernest and two colleagues complained to agents that some activists were misrepresenting themselves. They were saying they were press in order to attend news conferences. It's unclear what, if anything, came of that meeting, but it's the first time we have record of Ernest directly interacting with the FBI. The next known meeting would be two years later, in 1960.
0: Since before the Civil War, there have been Negroes in the South who pressed for equality, the right to take their place among men. As their educational standards rose, as their experience with the outside, unsegregated world increased, the number of those who spoke out for equality also increased.
2: Membership in the Negro rights organizations burgeoned. Plans were laid. Suits were filed.
1: 41-year-old Bill Lawrence got into his Chevy sedan and headed east from Memphis. He passed cornfields and tried to avoid mud holes. He and his partner, Joseph Kearney, were headed to Fayette County. Ernest was already there. He had set up his camera at the edge of a cotton field. It was winter. Everything was brown. And he pointed his viewfinder on a family, bundled in winter coats, standing outside a canvas tent.
2: That's a family that lived in one of the tents in Tent City. One, two, three, four, five children, a wife and a husband.
1: Many black farmers and their families had been evicted, forced to live in tents, simply because they'd tried to register to vote. Ernest was there to cover the story. Bill and the FBI were supposed to be there supporting the black farmers, enforcing their right to vote. But the records show that they were also spying on activists. In one FBI report, dated December 23, 1960, there's a photo included in the FBI files from Fayette County. It's a photo of Melvin Dotson, a tenant farmer who ran a local voter registration organization. Dressed in his Sunday best, Dotson poses with five others outside of a law office. We don't know who wrote the report, but the second paragraph says, This photograph was made available to special agents William H. Lawrence and Joseph H. Kearney Jr. by freelance photographer Ernest C. Withers. It goes on to list Ernest's studio address, 319 Beale Street. This is the first photo, at least in the files that we have access to, that we know that Ernest supplied to the FBI. don't know exactly what led Ernest to begin providing photos to the Feds, or what his early conversations with Bill Lawrence would have looked like. Did the Bureau pressure him? Did they threaten him unless he worked with them? Or did Ernest seek them out? Was he eager to share information? Did he consider himself an informant at all? Or just a journalist who was obtaining information and passing it along to whoever was paying? Or maybe it was something deeper. Do you think, with your dad's military background he would have been sympathetic if Bill Lawrence or some of the FBI came to him and said, no, 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 we're we're fine with the peaceful folks, but we're just trying to root out the communists. Will you, will you help us?
2: You know, that's, that would be speculation on my part.
1: I get why Roz wouldn't go there. But still, Ernest's motivation is a big, frustrating gap in this story. We know that he was an informant, but we don't really know why. It's easy to come up with theories that he needed the cash or that as a former cop and a World War II veteran, he might have been sympathetic to the fight against communists. Maybe Ernest thought that by
3: cooperating with the FBI, he was protecting the movement. Here's Betty Lawrence again. The FBI was not seen as the enemy per se. The FBI was the federal law enforcement that could protect black people in the face of white police or state troopers or sheriffs that weren't going to protect them. Or as Roz Withers puts it, they
2: were the best of the evils.
1: The FBI was?
2: Yeah. They Why? were the best of the evils. Why was that? Because they, were, they would listen or they would adhere to what their complaints were. And sometimes they were used to step in to minimize just the, the evilness of Jim Crow.
1: Mm-hmm. Times when the local law enforcement and government couldn't be trusted, you Could might call not. the feds in.
2: Exactly. And they were held to a higher standard of the law. Even though Jim Crow was accepted in southern states, it was not a national enforcement. Hmm. And recognizing that from uh, the FBI standpoint, they would enforce not favorably, but they would enforce sometimes the law to our advantage.
1: So while a photojournalist or an activist today might say, I'm never talking to the FBI, knowing now what we know Mm -hmm. about what the FBI did during the civil rights movement or surveillance, at the time, it might have been a different calculation.
2: Well, at the time, (laughs) when you think about what was happening, You know we didn't even have the right to vote so who are we to tell the FBI what to do we're talking not being able to to vote not being able to go to the zoo five days a week I mean think about those times Mm. those were times that we had no authority to have a voice our voice came with the struggle or there is a voice because of the struggle That
1: last point that Roz is making is yet another reason why Ernest might have worked with the FBI. Essentially, it might not have been a choice. Sure, the FBI was a better option than the local police, but the FBI was also incredibly powerful. If it didn't like you, it could use that power to destroy you. Maybe Ernest didn't feel like he could say no. Money, sympathy, pressure, they're all just theories. Conjecture there are attempts to peer inside the brain of a dead man. The truth is, we just don't know. But we're going to keep wrestling with this question throughout the series. We do know that one month after Ernest gave those first photos to the FBI, at the end of 1960... He and Bill Lawrence were both back in Memphis. And Lawrence was asking Ernest to give him information about the Nation of Islam, the black Muslim group that the Bureau saw as a new threat. Here's an actor reading what Lawrence wrote in his files on January 31st, 1961.
0: Withers will continue to be on the alert for information regarding the NOI and will attempt to specifically identify individual followers thereof.
1: And Ernest did exactly that. He gave the FBI photos of the Nation of Islam members and notes from their meetings. By February, Lawrence was petitioning his bosses back in Washington to put Ernest on the payroll. He wanted to make him an official confidential informant. Here's what he wrote in a memo to his
0: bosses. Because of his many contacts in the racial field, plus his indicated willingness to cooperate with the Bureau, as attested by his recent furnishing of information, It is recommended that Withers be considered as a PCI.
1: A PCI, a potential confidential informant. This was the start of Ernest's new double life. Next time on Unfinished, Ernie's Secret.
2: What I can say is that we assumed we were being surveilled. And then also surveilling situations in which they should be surveilling and then not doing anything to be of any assistance, knowing that you couldn't really count on the federal government and its spy agencies to make the local police forces follow the law.
1: This season of Unfinished is a co-production of Stitcher and Scripps, Our senior producer is Roy Hurst. The editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our show is written by Ellen Weiss. Executive producers are Camille Stanley and Ellen Weiss. Our music is composed by Edward Tex Miller. Mixing is by Casey Holford. Special thanks to reporter and author Mark Paraschia for sharing documents, sources, and his years of work on this story. Mark is the author of the book A Spy in Canaan how the FBI used a famous photographer to infiltrate the civil rights movement. Thanks also to the WGBH archives. We had production help from McKenna Smith and Suzanne Reber. Our FBI documents were brought to life by actor Corey Landis. Fact-checking was by Kelvin Bias. Stitcher's vice president of content is Peter Clowney. If you like the show and believe in this kind of storytelling, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. It'll help more people to discover Unfinished. I'm Wesley Lowry. Thanks for listening.